0: I think the biggest thing with CRT for me that stuck out was the lack of curiosity. Like, I'm not even curious about what this means. Shut it down now. Um, It's bad. Like, how do we become more vulnerable and curious? Because that's a way to heal history.
1: You're listening to The Follow, a multicultural podcast from creative agency Sanders Wingo where we talk to up-and-coming BIPOC creators, movement makers, and thought leaders who we follow. These are influencers who you might not know about, but we think you should. We talk to them about their work, worldview, and how they use their platform. But we also cover race, identity, and all things culture in a format designed to help us all get smarter about culture. If you like the show, please do us a huge favor and subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. It boosts the show's visibility so other people can find and enjoy it as well. In this episode, we speak to Marcy Alvis Walker, creator of the blog and Instagram feed Black Coffee with White Friends, which chronicles her experiences as a black woman navigating predominantly white spaces. Most recently, Marcy has also created Mockingbird History Lessons where she researches, writes, and shares the missing narratives of our country's history. In our conversation, she talks about the origins of her blog, how our historical heroes should be allowed to be complicated, how the frustrations around critical race theory can be healed if we practice curiosity, and so much more. Hosting this conversation is me, Jose Bencomo, agency producer at Sanders Wingo. Enjoy the show. I can tell you that I am like super excited to interview you because I think you're very brave to put yourself out there in the social sphere, the way you have. You share a lot, very personally.
0: I think on the blog, I shared a lot more personally than I do in my feed. When I started writing the blog, I was creating this blog specifically because I was raising a kid who was a teen. And teenagers just don't want to know you in that way. (laughs) They don't want to sit. They don't don't want to sit and talk about how you're feeling about politics or religion or anything like that. All of that just sounds like a speech to them. And so um, those deeper feelings, and they don't want the sentimental, what I hope I'm creating for my kid. I wish I had letters and thoughts and essays and journals and a feed where I could see how she was processing the world particularly as someone who migrated from Jim Crow South to a very still Jim Crow North like how was that for her but I don't I don't have those stories it would be a great thing to have had them so yeah they they got personal from the beginning and then um when I started the feed, it was more just to announce when I'd written a blog post because I didn't really know how that worked, and you know it, it. Then I just decided I wanted to share things that were not just about me, but you know, poetry and what I was finding in scripture that was interesting. Mm-hmm. And my husband's a a a beautiful letterer, and we we are a big lettering design family. So wanting it to look like a gift to people as opposed to just something that wasn't custom. So, you know, it, it it a lot of things played into it to make it personal. I don't know if I ever went in intending for it to be yeah. <laughs> so personal. And I never in a million years if someone would have told me that Black Coffee with White Friends would be what it is today, which isn't saying much in the sense of the grand scheme of all the things that um, could be considered a success in this country in particular. But for me, I thought maybe 30 followers, (laughs) maybe, maybe a few friends will read my blog and we can talk about it over coffee. You know, like really, I thought, I thought it was going to be that and when it turned out to be something that was, and I did, I did go into it though, saying I'm a religious person, spiritual person. And I basically was like, well, if God, if, if God is good and given my childhood, then show me this good sort of a thing. Like I really did come, I'm like, I'm not going to use a hashtag. I'm not going to, you know, do a whole bunch of acts. I'm just going to see, how it grows organically, what what it will become, and it will become what it's going to become. And I thought if if it hit thirty, I would fall out of my seat. So um, that it's so big, that bigger than my my imagination. And you know, it, it, it's a strange thing. I don't really know how to process that. I am a private person too. I'm I'm often at home, very introverted. Um,
1: Who is Marcia Elvis Walker?
0: Mm. That's a good question. I and one that I don't think I've ever gotten. First and foremost, I I am a human being, I believe, created by a higher intelligence that I call God. Um, for other people, that might mean something else. But I believe first and foremost, I, I am a human being. Secondly, I am The descendant of slavery for sure. But most importantly, I'm a descendant of great hope with great disappointment. So I'm the descendant of parents who lived through the civil rights movement, who lived through all this great, 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 great hope with the end of Jim Crow. My mother couldn't wait to get married to leave the Jim Crow South. Like she purposely found a boy who visited the South every summer who was from up north because she knew she got pregnant by this guy. He'd have to marry her and take her back north because she did not want to be in the South. So there was this great, great hope with Dr. King, like we have to just dial it back. There was all this change that seemed to be moving in this certain direction where people were hopeful. people were really hopeful. and then the Vietnam War hit, you know? And that took it out of a lot of people. And then, you know, several people were assassinated and killed. And that took it out of people. So I had this family that had been traumatized politically and racially. And they held they swallowed that. They swallowed those feelings. And they hoped for better for us. And then we, when we, my sisters, our generation didn't turn out to be what they thought it was going to be with, you know, the war on drugs and whatever, what have you, I think there was great disappointment. So I think I am the daughter of trauma. I think I'm very much the daughter of trauma. I recently put the finishing touch on my first book. And I have said that if I had to sum up my family and my I guess my genealogy, I would say we were the Book of Lamentations. There's just a lot of sorrow, a lot of disappointment, but also there's great joy and great just relentless hopefulness. So I'm the daughter of that as well. And then after I'm those things, I'm raising a kid who I hope will change the legacy that I inherited. So I was this mom trying to make the world different for for my kid because I wanted it to be a different experience, but you don't, there's just, there's just so much you just don't see coming as a parent. And as a Black person, I honestly and truly thought that the things that I had dealt with in my past in school, the, the racism that I faced, that, that that wasn't so much of a thing that I could will myself out of racism, so to speak, if I Properly, if I graduated from high school and went to college. And that's not from me. That's what our parents were told and what they believed. They believed that if their kids did all this stuff, then finally America would accept this one generation. When that wasn't happening, people were disappointed, naturally. I wanted my kid to do better than this generation. And then we had a Black president. <laughs> um, and I thought, here's our moment. And I think a lot of us did. <laughs> and, um, so I guess I would say that I am, I am definitely the product of great hope. Um, I am also the product of, of great disappointment. And I'm a person hoping to leave more hope than trauma. That's, my, that's who I think I am.
1: And I think that really comes through in the content that you've created. What made you feel like this was something that you had to start?
0: So I, I said that I really wanted my child to have this different experience than I had had. And I did. I had a, a pretty traumatic childhood. And part of that childhood definitely was due to the trauma that my grandparents and my mother and my father and had received, that gener- the generations before me had received in their lives, but also just politically and socially, economically. So I went to college. I did all the things that I was supposed to do, and it was still really hard, um, you know, because I'm a Gen Xer. And,
1: you and, and me both. <laughs> yeah,
0: it was, was it, you know, we, we weren't, you know, like the baby boomers, we weren't having that same experience. And I remarried and moved to Texas, and... I started our kid in a public school where they were bullied for being smart, and I thought, "Why do I want them to be bullied for being smart? Because then they'll just think it's not worth it to be smart." I've got to figure out something, and I tried homeschooling. It's awful; <laughs> not a very good homeschooler. And I found the, what I thought was the answer it was this private Christian academy. I was the only black mother. I found out that they were going to be doing slave debates, that my kid was going to have to stand up in their class and argue the pros and the cons of slavery in Texas, in a Confederate state, an ex-Confederate state. And I was like, what? Like, why, why are we doing this? And so I went online to research if this was something that was done. And I found out, oh my gosh, this is something that people do. This is something, this is a way, why are people teaching in this way? And I have gone to an all white public school, but I never had to do a slave debate. I just never had to do that. Interestingly, the, the guy who ran the high school, he had just adopted a son who was African-American, a little kid who was maybe, you know, kindergarten, first grade. So he was very curious about, what the conversation was and it turned out that the teacher the the history teacher was the head of the department brilliant woman sweet woman weirdly the thing that i recognized was that these weren't people who were hateful these were people who really thought they were loving god and loving others and it wasn't malicious in any way and i could that's the thing that was so shocking to me is that what do you do when someone's being racist but it's not malicious right It was this kind of realization where I realized I don't know enough about history, and this teacher who has spent, I don't know how much of her career, at least 30 years, teaching history, didn't know history. And so enough to know that a slave debate could be traumatic to not just my child, but to any child. So that really was the jumping off point. I think I had gone back and forth saying that I would never do a blog and I have been writing the letters to my kid privately. I never thought I was going to do it publicly, but I did because I wanted maybe some of those moms that I was going to school with and having a lot of coffee with um, to see a different side of history that maybe they had not considered.
1: Along with your blog, had you actually talked to them face to face, your white friends? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> so that that could yeah. not have been an easy thing to do. Can you walk me through that first conversation?
0: I won't say that it you know what, I'll say this. Anytime that a person of a marginalized group is having a conversation with someone who's not marginalized by that particular thing, be it that you're a person who is living at the poverty level talking to a boss who obviously isn't, those are always awkward conversations because It's hard for us to wrap our minds around someone else's experience. Both ways, I will say. And I mean, like, I could never tell anyone what it's like to be anything else than a Black woman living in this Black skin. But I can tell people what the effects of other identities have been upon me in this skin. But yeah, the the conversations were, I, I never, I thought before then that I was having conversations I didn't realize until this happened how often things happened and I would not say anything because I would be weighing like, well, if I say this, there's no one else in the room to back me up. If I say this, what's it going to cost my kid? Like, you know, if I say this thing to this teacher or that teacher, but the slave debate thing was something that wasn't minor. Someone touching my hair or making a comment about my hair or touching my kids' hair or making a comment about my kids' hair, or saying something just kind of like silly to me, like, oh, I'm colorblind, I don't see color, when obviously you see color because you're telling me the only other, the only black person in the room that you don't see color. It'd be different if you were telling every white person that you met that you don't see color. But the very fact that you're telling me a black person that you don't see color means that you see color. So <laughs> Like conversations like that, I'm weighing like, what's it worth? Is it worth my time to, to have this conversation? Is it not? But then when the slave debates came, I, I had to start having conversations. So I did a couple of things. I first talked to the school, which was really nerve wracking for me. I'm not a confrontational person. I'm a passionate person, but being passionate in your living room is an uh, entirely different thing than sitting across a table from someone and sharing your feelings and experience. So that was the first. And then in that school, I had probably, I don't know how many meetings with groups of parents. We were trying to put together a diversity team because I really didn't know what to do. So I did a lot of things kind of clumsily and not with much finesse or knowledge other than putting people in rooms and talking about what we could do. And, you know what was possible. I started inviting women over to my home. Like I, I'd done this thing where I had a lot of white women who would invite me to their home, but I, I was very private about my home. I didn't, I didn't necessarily want them to come to my home because I wasn't sure how much I wanted to reveal of myself, and that comes from my childhood because you know I was raised by people who went through Jim Crow and that's a dangerous thing for them. Like you don't you don't let white people in your home because you don't know what they're going to perceive to be that you earn too much or you, you're not doing enough and what that might cost you. So I think that was just a latent thing from me in childhood. But I started inviting, saying that if women wanted to talk to me about race or if we're going to have a conversation about my life, then it should be in my home. I was on this prayer group and I had one of the moms said to me, I've thought about it. And I'm okay with the name of your blog. <laughs> I thought that was so funny. When I said, well, yeah, I don't know why you would think that I would need for you to be okay with it. But, okay, I actually am a Black person who has had a lot of coffee with a lot of white friends. And the Black coffee part of it is... How do we just bring it without the cream and the sugar? How do we have these conversations without just a straight up truth finding, truthful conversation about race? So it was interesting to have those conversations, and then I I did a lot of work with that within my my church. I joined the Be the Bridge group. So yeah, it was it was it wasn't always comfortable, but it wasn't always uncomfortable. I think it's far more uncomfortable for me to. See or hear the thing being said and not say anything that will keep me up at night. Saying something, getting it wrong, it being totally messy, bumbled, awkward, even upsetting. and I've had that, you know, doesn't bother me so much as what it might cost me if I don't say anything. Where will this person go next and say something truly? Awful, like having to tell friends. I had a friend tell me, ask me, tell me, is it okay that I say that I'm colorblind? And having to gently say, I know you, and I know you are a truly, genuinely lovely person, and you you are meaning this to be this humane and good thing. Like you're not meaning it to be dismissive, but it's it's very dismissive. Having those conversations weren't easy, and it was awfully exhausting. We eventually left that school. We eventually moved to a community that's very diverse so that I don't always have to have those conversations because I just think it costs lives. Like I don't, I don't want to cost lives. And I think every time that, that you're given an opportunity to be honest and truthful, even if it's awkward, even if you're wrong, and in and, and some of the cases you get it wrong, I think it's worth it because what that what stays hidden and unsaid usually becomes the most poisonous, divisive, destructive thing out there. And it's just because of people's unknowing.
1: Yeah, it's great how all that is harmonized within you. You know, you saw a problem that needed to be dealt with. I agree with you. There are some conversations like these are the kinds of conversations that we need to have. Particular things that deal with racism, needs to be addressed. If you're not brave enough to do it, it never gets dealt with.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, as I'm sitting here talking with you, I'm thinking, I never looked at it that I was having conversations so much about race as I was having conversations about who I was as a human being, what it meant for me to exist, how I'm existing in this world, and how I'm processing this world's reception Mm -hmm. of me. And I think that's a conversation that anyone can have. Not necessarily, you know, like it doesn't have to be about race. It can be about any kind of identity. And I love those conversations too. I I love conversations when people are just able to be extremely vulnerable about how they are in the world and not to hide behind anything.
1: You know, on your Mockingbird website, uh, you mentioned history as a ritual.
0: Yeah, well, a, lo- a little bit of it is what I said, but a lot of it is like, well, what is the real source of what we're doing here? If we're talking about CRT, if that's the thing that's in in our history that we're creating right now, and this will be a moment that will be talked about, the amount of laws that are being passed in fear of CRT, critical race theory, the law, the amount of books that are being banned in fear of CRT. My thing is like, well, what, what is it that needs to be healed with this? And it's not knowing, just knowing that CRT exists and that there's a problem with it. It's, well, how do we open ourselves to curiosity? So I may put a practice together and, and actually this, this will change a lot with the podcast. But last year we did like um, these sheets, these practice sheets. Of, well, how do I practice curiosity? Because I think the biggest thing with CRT for me that stuck, struck out, that stuck out was the lack of curiosity. Like I, I'm not even curious about what this means. Shut it down now. Right. That's, that's what I saw happening. people making signs to shut it down. I don't want to know. Um, it's bad. Like how do we become more vulnerable and curious? Because that's a way to heal history. You can't just heal history by doing black squares on Instagram. That's a way of creating community, but that's not a way of, of healing. Healing is to say, okay, well, how do I grieve and lament? That's healing, but how do I practice that? How do I practice community lament and grieving? And how do I practice that in a way that speaks to the history that's happening in front of me and speaks to the history that's happened in the past? But that takes time and it takes energy and it takes and rituals because it takes a ritual of being able to do that on a regular basis. I think for me with Mockingbird, I've, I've had to come to a realization that, yes, I can do that in a very real way, it's what I do for a living. <laughs> Another reason why I was like, well, what what is easier for people and and that would be a podcast that would help people work through these things.
1: It said on your site that the first time you had ever heard stories about the origins of the United States of America, that you were the only black experience in the room. Can mm-hmm. you tell us about your choice of the use of black experience?
0: The Black experience in this country, for me, is a legacy of oppression. And so it's very hard to love a country that didn't always love you. You know, it's really, really hard to hear a history and to be in a classroom with kids who love George Washington and to be asked to draw a cherry tree and be told that George Washington never told a lie, yet he did lie and say that my people were not human and that they were only three-fifths worth of vote, you know, (laughs) or of being counted, um, and that they were property. So that's a big lie. So, um, but, you know, as a kid, you're being told that. And also when you're asked as kids, about your origin story of your family, which every kid gets this question. I wish, I wish schools didn't do it, but, and you can't say, well, my family's from Liberia or or Kenya or Ghana or West Africa, like, but to say, you know, well, my great grand, great grandparent was a slave and was enslaved. And I don't know where we come from, you know, that's hard and difficult and i remember having experiences of needing to bring in a dish and to dress up as your ethnicity like in school so you know you had kids like you know wearing a kilt or you know like a kid bringing in something from england or you know like maybe dressing and some sort of period piece that that was Regency or something. Kids who were Asian doing something to to honor that. Kids who were indigenous, or you know, told that they were indigenous, doing something like that. And then, what am I going to dress as? An enslaved person, you know? It's, right. it's it's tough. So so yeah. So when you're hearing history as a kid, and you're the only Kid in that room that had a Black experience of history, it does change that history. It absolutely changes it. And there are better ways for us to teach this history where kids still have their dignity, but also can have true lament over what truly happened without anyone being erased. So I I think both can be true.
1: And the title Mockingbird, obviously, reference to To Kill a Mockingbird?
0: I named it Mockingbird mainly because that is the book that most people can point to and say that's when I first kind of did anything with race outside of a history class in school. Um, it's that book, To Kill a Mockingbird.
1: And, you know, I think it's a great title because, like Mockingbird, you think you know what the history is. Right but Mm -hmm. you don't and i think about how you explore history deeper and expose the history that you know most of us don't get taught yeah there's this moment where you have to sort of either confront or reconcile the history and the truth that you come across either you're going to outright deny it Mm -hmm. and not kill your heroes or you're going to Tackle it and wrestle with it and try to understand it so you can move forward
0: yeah and 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 I like what you said about heroes. I just wish people allowed our heroes to be complicated, you know it's it's probably the one thing i we're 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 nerds in our home too, <laughs> probably not a shocker <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think it's the thing that the Marvel comic world has gotten so right is that. Um, all these heroes are super complicated. They're not all good. They don't always make the right decisions. Sometimes they don't always make a level-headed decision. Sometimes they aren't rational. Sometimes they're more passionate. I think sometimes their idea of right knocks against another hero's idea of what is right. So I think that that it would be a much more greater experience with your heroes if you allowed for heroes to be complicated and i think we aren't open to that we aren't open to complicated heroes we when it comes to history
1: i was going to ask you you know what can you do when with the opposition when people refuse to see their heroes as complicated when they want them uh to be simple and heroic
0: it's funny we actually Deal with this a lot in our home we've we've lost a lot I, I I won't pretend that this has been easy I've lost dear friends who were very offended by just my existing and doing the work that I do um I've lost family members who have been fine as with my blackness as long as i didn't discuss it right and I also have had family members who've been very distant because we also are raising a queer child. They came out when they were 19 and now they're 20. So, you know, um, we raised a human being and that human being is is queer. And that's been really hard for people. And people have used religion and history as reasons to be very upset with me um, when I say things about what I feel Texas churches should be doing when queer families, particularly parents of trans kids are being told that their parenting is somehow less than. And I see that as a blasphemous act against God in creation to allow that and say that you love your neighbor to me is not love. So what do I do when family members and friends and people who I thought Knew me suddenly feel that I'm too militant or I'm saying too much or I'm not being fair to them, um, you know, I, I cry <laughs> to be quite frank, but I, I go to other leaders who have had worse and a lot of my heroes ha- who have had worse, um, and not to be too religious but my goodness if i'm saying that i'm a follower of of jesus well it didn't end so well with him (laughs) um and you know his time here on earth ended with a crucifixion but the point of the story is that he went through tremendous pain had a lot of people fall away from him Not just that moment, but often. Um, The Bible doesn't make it seem like it was all that easy to stand up for people or to stand up for love or to stand up for justice. It usually doesn't turn out well. When I think of everything that Dr. King went through, you know, I have very little to complain about. Um, Dr. King was one of the most hated men in the country. I would say probably the world at the time that he was assassinated. People didn't mourn him until he was dead. They they really, LBJ had horrible things to say about Dr. King after signing the Voting, Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act. So I think when I think of my heroes, people who have just stuck by what they meant, stuck up for people who had no voice, they lost things. Even Mr. Rogers, I, Mr. Rogers is one of my, Um, and mr rogers was often ridiculed and made fun of mr rogers never was disparaging back there were states that would not show his show anymore when he put his feet in the same water as a black man a lot of people don't know that about mr rogers that when he spoke up about racism A lot of the states that are passing laws right now to that that we find racist and offensive Mm
1: -hmm.
0: would not show that, air that show. I think of Jim Henson. He created a black Muppet named Roosevelt Franklin Mm -hmm. um, back in the 70s. And a lot of people wrote in offended by this black puppet that was purple, by the way. But was you know obviously supposed to be a black little boy to represent because he wanted all kids to to see themselves in this world, the Sesame Street world. I think about that. I think about Harriet Tubman having to trust so many people that could have turned against her. I I'm I, that is probably one of the most mind boggling ones for me is that Harriet Tubman left that plantation not knowing if she was going to live or die.
1: That's awesome. And I think you're right. One of the hardest things in life is to leave your truth.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then next to that is living with an open mind and open heart. Like you, I'm a parent. I have three little ones by my own. I'm raising uh, two daughters and a boy. And, you know, I think about the things that you wrote for your daughter and your blog, you know, the things you touch upon in your Instagram feed. And what you write is a good positive thought for me because it keeps me in check. It makes me stop. And it makes me think about, you know, who I'm raising and who will they grow up to be? What influence do I have on them? What influence does the world have on them? And then when they become adults and they're ready uh, to lead their own lives, who will they be?
0: Yeah. It's, it's, I I love that you said that because um, it's funny. I was the last to know. About my own kid. I was the last to know it. We were the first that they told by, that they, in the family that they told. I think they tested it with friends so that they had like someplace off the land. But I thought I had done a pretty good job being open minded. But it was interesting because there was just a lot that I hadn't considered until. It's one thing to be, this is the thing that I've learned about allyship that I didn't understand until I was, I had always been an ally of the um, gay community, but I didn't realize that allyship doesn't really cost you much. It really doesn't. I could say, yeah, I I support gay marriage, but you know, it's not costing me anything to support gay marriage. But it became something different with my, with my kid when I realized how, yes, that's useful, but it's not that useful if I feel that I don't have to say anything if it's not my battle. And um, just a quick story. Um, I, when I got my first book deal with a pretty conservative imprint, I was, it was explained to me that they were, they were not gay affirming, that they were this, you know, marriages between a man and a woman. And, and my friends at the time, they knew that I was friends with Jen Hatmaker. She was a very popular, she is still a very popular, she calls herself, she was an evangelical darling. And she was until had written seven books or so. And had done an HGTV show, had a huge followership, and one article said that she would not only dance at a gay person's wedding, but toast and felt that their marriages would be as holy as anyone else's. Oh my gosh, Um, lost so many followers, lost book deals, had books pulled off of Christian, out of Christian bookstores for saying that she loved and affirmed another human being. And I said to my, the editor at the time, when she asked how I felt about those things, like, you know, and I said, you know, my thing is race. I'm talking about race. That is just not my hill to die on. I had no idea that my kid was queer, none whatsoever. And I thought I could be this ally without having to the thing is, I thought I could be an ally for Christian, for 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 the queer community, even if I had a book printed by people who were anything but their ally, right? Right. People who would call them an Obama. It, it's such a double stand, like it's just mind boggling, and and not my finest moment. And I wrote this book. By the time I got to the third draft, I want to say where I really was excited and I loved it. Um, and my editor and I we were talking on the phone, and I said, Oh, she's she was delighted with where I landed. And and then I said, you know, but I do have something to tell you, because my kid had just come out. I said, Remember when I said that, you know, the gay community wasn't my hill to die on, it's my hill to die on. And she said, I support you 110%, but I have to tell you what they are gonna say, the people who I work for are not gonna go for it. And um she fought for me. She fought for me to keep my book with them. They did not want it. So I lost the book deal. <laughs> and um, you know, and, and my book was just out there and then just floating around. And luckily, I had an awesome agent who was able to find a home for my book. But it was it was scary. It was scary. So when I think about not knowing who your kids are going to become i had no idea none whatsoever and i'll also say this you also don't know who your kids are going to fall in love with so you don't know if your kid's going to fall in love with someone who's muslim or of another race so a lot of what you're saying or doing could really jeopardize that in the future and, and i've been the recipient of that so I think it's interesting how much we don't know of our kids and their journey, and what will be required of us to love them truly and deeply with you know unconditional, all accepting, affirming love. And it's something when you get to the challenge of that. It's exciting. We were so excited because <laughs> we really it was exciting to be able to love someone who didn't expect us to do it because of our faith. Even though we many times said that no matter what, you are loved, you're loved, you're loved, your kid's like, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> whether they come out or not, whether they're, doesn't matter what their gender identity, your kid is always testing that. We'll we'll see just how much you, you know, what be it their grades, them not wanting to go to college or to go to college, you know, them deciding that they're the opposite political party than you, like whatever it is, you know, we don't know the people that we're raising. And we really have to think about that. What does that love mean when we say, and what are we willing to lose for it? As for me and my husband, we're willing to lose it all to show this kid that they are 10,000% loved. And you know what? When people question me on that, I'm like, well, isn't that what you want God to do? Isn't that exactly what you want God to do? Isn't that what you say and claim that Jesus did and did for us, like just laid it all out for us to be able to be loved and accepted? Why wouldn't you do that for your kid?
1: You know, uh, we do this podcast and it helps us to get smarter about culture. Race, ethnicity, and identity often plays a big part in shaping culture. So with that so in terms of race ethnicity and identity and the incredible journey that that you're on um how do you identify yourself
0: oh human i think it's (laughs) i think it's the only identity that matters (laughs) um i am human and the reason why is because if I identify myself as all the other things, and I do have those other identities, I don't want anyone to say that I to feel that I'm washing away the things that do matter and do make me a much more complicated person. But first and foremost, I have to humble myself and say that I'm human because that allows me to be, to see other people who aren't like me as human. And that allows me to, as my friend, Kirsten Power says to grace is being able to allow someone the dignity of their own experience without having to change their experience. It's like, I don't need, a, you asked about people who might disagree or, or feel differently about some of my posts. I don't need people to agree with everything that I'm saying, but what I do need people to do in my space is to just see that I'm human and I'm allowed to have my own experience. And they're allowed to have theirs. And I don't want to have conversations about race with, or history or gender or with someone who doesn't want to have that conversation. But I also don't want to, as my kid told us last night, I don't want to disparage anyone. And that's tough for me. Um, but I, But by saying that I am human, it helps me not to disparage others.
1: Social platforms. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite social platform to spread your work?
0: Um, I'm only on Instagram.
1: <laughs> well, why is it your favorite?
0: I'm visual. That's one thing. So because of the time that it takes to make a post, it could take me anywhere. Sometimes a post is quick, but most of the time a post takes a good couple of hours. My husband, thank the Lord, is a designer who can help me make that look good. But as far as just the content itself, it takes time. So I don't have much left over for other (laughs) platforms. I do love YouTube. I'm just not on YouTube.
1: But you're on Instagram and you have upwards of 130,000 followers. Do you remember the moment when you realized that people were really paying attention to what you were doing?
0: Oh, I think I was overwhelmed. I, it doesn't take much to overwhelm me. You know, those fainting goats, I'm, I'm very easily overwhelmed in that sense. And I think when I hit, hit 1,000, I was, I was blown away. I didn't think, I, I, I'm not even joking. That was tremendous to me. So 130, it's, it's a strange thing to me. It's bittersweet because some of that comes from all the turmoil that people have seen. I'm grateful that people found me to be a safe place to be. That, that's, that's nice. But I would gladly lose all those followers if it meant that George Floyd never got killed and Sandra Bland and the rest of them were here with us and there was nothing to talk about. I would much rather that.
1: As far as uh, Patreon and Substack go, how has that impacted your work?
0: It keeps me writing. That's the thing that I love about those when people ask me like, how do you, how do you write so much? One of the reasons is that I have people who have invested in me and I don't want to let them down. So I write because that's what I have to do. So, and it keeps me writing and it keeps me thinking about not just what I want to hear and see in the world, but what, what are my readers saying that they want to see and hear in the world? So that's how it's impacted. It's impacted my writing greatly because, um, it keeps me curious and it keeps me engaged with people. I love the comments that I get. I don't get like as many as I do on Instagram, but it's something to have someone, I mean, of all the things that people can do with their time to have someone read your work and then not only read it, take the time to comment. That's gold. I mean, to see what people are thinking and how, they're moving about in the world and seeing the world. It's amazing.
1: Your properties seem to exist in a space of cultural understanding and healing. So thinking of other writers, creators, and good humans in this space, are there any trends that you've been noticing that you're excited about? Oh,
0: um, I don't know about trends. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be 53. I, I, I don't know a lot about trends. <laughs> but i'll tell you what what i get excited about i really i really love the way that the queer community is owning their stories i i i love that i love the way that they are supporting one another i love the way that the indigenous culture and lately i've been following a lot of um Asian um, American people who are, you know, that's, that's been, a I, I don't think people understand. We're going to look back in history and see a lot of death in those communities and wonder what well, we know what happened, but wonder why we didn't do as much protesting for them as we have for our black communities. But I love the way that communities are showing up. I love the way that what the religion calls nons, people who are no longer or not affiliated with any sort of religion, but who want to see a better humanity. Oh my gosh, it does my heart so good to see how much of that exists. So I'm 110% there for those moments and those people creating such beautiful work out there, just beautiful things. And I find it mostly, you know, in the queer communities and in non-religious communities. That's where I find the beauty of that work mostly.
1: Since we're first and foremost an advertising agency, we always want to know, are there any organizations and brands that you would love to partner with to support the causes that you care about?
0: I don't think people know just how much. Book buying, I do. I would love to do something with the people at Bookshop. I think what they're doing is really cool, bookshop.org, where they are supporting smaller independent booksellers by trying to sell books in the same way that Amazon is selling books, but without it being so dehumanizing, I guess. But um, yeah, I I would love to do anything with any bookshop, any bookshop pretty much. Just because I love the idea. I remember when electronic books came out, eBooks came out and everyone was so worried that bookshops were going to go away. And I was just like, oh, that's like saying that we won't have living rooms. I mean, <laughs> people love a bookshop just because there's a romantic thing to them. So if there were every, any kind of partnership I want to do, I would love to partner with local independent book stores throughout the country. Particularly even with the book that I'm, I would love to do that and to support them and to do some sort of ad campaign with them. That would be amazing. I would love to do that in some nerdy, ridiculous way.
1: Is there anyone that you're following right now?
0: I follow a lot of people.
1: (laughs) Who are like Um, your your top, top ones that you really, really, really love?
0: Gosh. Because I write about a lot of hard stuff and I have to constantly be reminded that life is also sweet and good. I follow people doing their small part, not major things. So I follow Wolfgang2242 and I'm a pet person, but this guy has, I, and I think he's in New York City. I, I think he's like in a major city and he has, I don't know how many senior dogs along with a chicken, along with a pig, along with a duck. And I just love this feed so much. And (laughs) I just think it's beautiful. Um, I'm a big fan of Jenny's ice cream, her packaging, her whole branding. Do you know Jenny's ice cream? We actually were gifted this ice cream, which was so exciting but like, you know, just has all these strange flavors, but it's more than that, it's the look of it. It's the, it's just such good branding and it's such a joy. She just recently released an ice cream called Rainbows on a Cloudy Day. And you would think that you would open it and inside it would be this rainbow ice cream, but the ice cream is gray on the inside, <laughs> like clouds, but yeah. in this, this beautiful shade of gray that you just want to eat. Um, I love that kind of stuff. So I do follow, you know, I am married to a designer. I'm very aesthetic. I love good branding. It doesn't get better than what she's doing. And then, of course, I do have a lot of just close friends who are just lights to me. I'm obsessed with Kevin Garcia, the Kevin Garcia, who is a non-binary it calls them they call themselves a bunch of things. A non-binary tarot reader, pastor, like and they have taught me a lot about what opinions cost other human beings. So as someone who was queer in the South, what that and raised in church, what people's opinions cost them. And the healing that it takes to get away from that—it's really been humbling.
1: Finally, where can we follow you on social media?
0: <laughs> well, I'm only on Instagram, <laughs> so I'm at Black Coffee White Friends and I'm at Mockingbird History Lessons. If you have to choose one, I would say Black Coffee White Friends is where I post m- the most of my work, and usually if I'm doing anything for Mockingbird, I will post on Black Coffee White Friends as well. But if you want to see everything that I'm doing, pretty much everything is there. Although I will say, I think my Mockingbird history lessons feed is pretty. So <laughs> I think people should follow for that. It's informative and it's good looking. So <laughs> um, follow for that reason.
1: Thank you, Marcy, for being here and taking the time to share a little bit of your world with us. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to The Follow, a multicultural podcast from creative agency Sanders Wingo. For show notes, past episodes, or to get notified when a new episode comes out, visit thefollowpodcast.com. And if you like the show, please subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. It boosts the show's visibility so other people can find and enjoy it as well. Until next time, take care.